there's a lot of research around where teacher education programs place students and looking for the quote perfect placement but to me I'm not sure that the perfect placement exists necessarily, right? But rather we need to help our students see themselves um, in the schools where we work. And again, many, again, I inherited a program where students see that. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above. The show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach in the Los Angeles area. This has been my 16th year in the classroom, and this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. If you are watching us on YouTube, if you like what you're seeing, go ahead and hit that thumbs up and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening to the podcast on the go, do consider rating us and reviewing us when you have a chance so that we can pop up in more people's feeds and algorithms and all that stuff. All right. We really appreciate you joining us. Jeff, man, it's been over two months now, right, of this uh, COVID shutdown situation. We haven't been in the, in the actual studio since March. It's funny to hear you say two months because I'm I'm over here like you know what what time is it what what day of the week <laughs> is it I feel like every day is kind of you know just blurring into the next um, but yeah it ha it has been over two months now I think and uh, or just about two months and um, yeah it is it's it's a fascinating uh, collective sociological experiment we are uh, <laughs> we are undertaking together here and. Uh, you know we're we're doing okay. The show the show is continuing, and I think in in a lot of ways it's actually uh, you know it's leveled the playing field, right? So what what we're doing is what everybody's doing, and, and it's allowing us to uh, you know perhaps um, you know elevate our game in some ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I do miss the studio. I miss the student helpers. I miss all the fancy tech that we would just look at and not really use because it was above our like <laughs> understanding of how to even get it going. But um, you know yeah. what I'm saying? We're going to keep the show rolling and continue to do so. Uh, Jeff, what's on the agenda for today's episode? Well, Manuel, as always, we got a good one for everybody. And uh, today we have a really special guest who's going to be joining us. And you know, we've, we have uh, in recent episodes been talking about this issue of diversity in uh, the teacher workforce, which has all kinds of sort of, you know, HR implications, right? And uh, this being kind of late spring and approaching the end of the school year here in California and, you know, maybe a little bit past the end of the school year in some other parts of the country. But um, it, is a, it is a critical time in schools uh, for us to be hiring. And in general, this would be that time of year when like, you know, hiring of teachers is in full gear and districts are issuing, you know, thousands and thousands of contracts across the country to uh, new hire teachers, to folks who are new to the profession, all of that. And so with that kind of context in mind, we wanted to bring on a guest who could help us unpack 
some really fascinating questions about the, the pipeline for teachers, right? Teacher training programs across the country and um, how the kind of evolving landscape of our profession impacts teacher training. So we've got Emma Ippolito, uh, who is the uh, director of the teacher education program at UCLA, um, which Manuel, I'm not sure, are you, wait, are you wait, familiar what, what, with- What uh, school with, was that? You said, wait, what was the name of that? I know, I, I said it quickly. It's the, it's the University of California at Los Angeles. Oh, are you, are you familiar with that? I think if you are talking about the one that happens to be the number one public university in the world, Jeff, ah. then yes, of course, I'm familiar with that one. Okay, yes. Just I just wanted to double check because, you know, sometimes you might miss something, you know, no, you're right, you're perhaps. right. I just want to make sure you were informed. That's all. Uh, so, so yeah, so we've got Emma, uh, Emma Ippolito is the, uh, the director of the teacher education program at UCLA and, uh, someone with just a wealth of experience, um, about teacher education and teacher training, um, to help us kind of explore this topic today. So it's going to be good. Uh, you definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that conversation, Jeff, especially in the context of these pending budget cuts that are, that are coming our way. You know, this is obviously a very traumatic year for for the country for the world really in in so many ways and in california our budget you know we had a, a bit of a surplus for a while we had i think i don't remember the exact number but we had billions in reserve for a rainy day and that's basically been wiped out by this coronavirus uh impact on our economy and i know that there's a lot of concern out there about what these budget cuts might do to schools and i think that's something that we might want to talk about a little bit right now before we get into the seminar with with Emma because I mean this is something that you know yes it is hiring season and yes it is the time where folks are are completing their uh, teacher ed programs and ready to transition into a full-time classroom of their own but there's also like just that that fear that there's not going to be really that much time before we start hitting those heavy heavy layoffs that we experienced during the Great recession. So I don't know. I, I wonder what your thoughts are about that, Jeff. Just this idea of yeah, it's hiring season, and yeah, folks are finishing the programs. But all the discussion lately has been about how these budget cuts are going to severely impact schools everywhere, and California specifically. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, I tell you, I am. I'm deeply worried right now, and. Uh, not just in the sense that, you know, all of us uh, should be worried about the, the lasting effects of the coronavirus, but even at this point in the equation, right? So like just with the effects that we've suffered so far and what we know so far, the, the governor of California um, just, just recently um, during uh, uh, the second week of May made an announcement that the state is projecting an $18 billion budget shortfall for schools, K-12 schools and community colleges. Now this is, you know, depending upon the calculations you look at, um, let's just sort of roughly approximate it as somewhere around like a 10% budget cut for education in California, right? Now, uh, you know, that's pretty alarming news yeah. when we think about what the impact would be on your local neighborhood school and your kid's school, right? Um, if that school were to suffer something approximating a 10% budget cut, right? Um, and so we're talking definitely about layoffs of staff. We're talking about cuts to programs. 
Those could be the programs that your kid loves. Your kid loves being on the badminton team, right? Well, the badminton team costs money, right? Um, that could, could manifest in things like uh, shortening school years uh, in, in certain districts, cutbacks on transportation, um, cutbacks on um, you know, investments in curriculum and materials that impact classroom instruction. So this, this is a massive, massive issue. Not to mention the fact that school districts in a lot of counties and cities and municipalities across this state and across the country are also some of the largest and most stable employers, right? So if we're talking about cuts back, cutbacks in not only teachers, but also staff, um, you know, classified staff and folks who work in district offices as well. So we're talking about a potentially like cascading negative economic impact here that uh, that is going to have a really uh, unfortunate if it if it plays out this way ripple effect on kids experience. And, and of course, this is happening at the same time as we have our our very governor, you know, floating the ideas of like we should extend the school year and start in July and, you know, sort of sort of make right. things, um, you know, try to make up for the fact that we had a, a, you know, essentially a truncated school year this year in a lot of ways. And so there's still a lot to be worked out. There's the, you know, pie in the sky, perhaps, uh, or, you know, um, maybe more unlikely than likely possibility that the federal government comes to the rescue with funds more similar to what uh, happened during the Great Recession uh, back in, in 2008. Um, but man, well, these, this is no joke, right? Like this is, yeah. this is a, a huge issue. And I know you've had some personal experience with, <laughs> with dealing with this kind of thing before as well. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, during the great recession, that just so happened to be the time when I shifted districts. So when I moved from Sacramento down to, uh, Pasadena and that put me on the bottom of the list in terms of seniority and my first three years working in my current district, I was, I was laid off. That first year I was saved by the Obama stimulus package. I don't remember the technical term for it, but I do remember specifically packing up my classroom at the end of the year with the understanding that like I'm basically done here. And then there was a board meeting and there was a decision made on what to do with those stimulus funds. And they used those funds to save a number of teachers that first year. In the second year, I was pink slipped again no stimulus funds that year um, that were available for to help me out that time and it came down to creative master scheduling i specifically remember myself and another social science teacher and we were basically you know instead of us each being laid off we were um shifted to instead of just being social science teachers we also did other things so it was like i did a few periods of history but then i was also activities director and also did avid so i became sort of a hybrid type of teaching position and and he had something similar so it was like creative master scheduling to try to keep us there in the third year it wasn't any of that. And I, it was deep into the summer before a position opened up. Um, I don't remember if it was that somebody retired or what, but a, when my spot opened back up and I was able to stay. So that was three years in a row where basically the end of the year, I was packing up without any knowledge of whether or not I, I would ever step back into that classroom. And that's just a, a really, I mean, I have some seniority now so that I'm not concerned about myself specifically in that regard, at least, you know, if it were to play out the exact same way that it played out during the Great Recession. But I'm concerned about so many of our best and brightest who don't have the seniority. I mean, that was yes. a, a terrible, terrible feeling, a terrible, terrible experience. And I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, especially those who are entering the profession, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, ready to make change. And, 
you know, being hit with layoff after layoff is something that I endured, but a lot of people didn't. A lot of people just took that as the sign that maybe teaching just wasn't for them. So we lost a lot of people because yeah. of that. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm worried, man. I'm worried. Yeah, I, you know, I think what you just named actually is a topic that I would love for us to explore on, a, on an upcoming episode at some point here because, uh, you know, as I think many people know, right, the, the way that uh, collective bargaining agreements in, in the vast majority of situations, at least across the country, uh, in teaching are structured is with a, a seniority-based layoff system, right? And so there, there's essentially the concept of last in, first out, right? And as, as a former administrator, the, uh, the prospect, right, of looking at your staff and seeing layoffs come and knowing that your, essentially your newest teachers are the people who have to go, whether those are some of your strongest teachers or whether, you know, they're not, right? Um, and then the same for your more veteran staff, right? Like knowing that you have to keep them, whether they're your strongest teachers or whether they're some of your weakest teachers uh, is, is so deeply frustrating and demoralizing. Um, and, you know, a, a structure that I think, especially with the, you know, the instability we see in our economy now where, you know, twice in, in, you know, essentially a decade or so span of time, we see these crumbling, you know, great recessions, depression type of events, um, you know, really sets our, our profession on sort of a horrible trajectory of like losing its, its new talent Right. And then uh, sort of slamming the door in the face of the next generation of folks at the very time when we have a shortage. Right. And so um, so I think that would be an, an interesting topic for us to explore, full of full of controversy and, yeah. uh, you know, politics. But uh, those are the, the topics I like. So, yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot to explore there because, you know, now, obviously, I've been in the game long enough that I'm not on the bottom of the seniority list. But at the same time. I, I don't trust schools and administrators and districts to have the freedom to sort of pick and choose who gets laid off and who doesn't. So I'm, I'm not a fan of the seniority-based layoffs at all. I'm also not a fan of having just the freedom at the district level or the school site level to decide who gets laid off and who doesn't because anybody that's worked in a, in a school system knows that there's, you know, there's just a lot of politics within. And although I trust my current administrators and, and my school site has, has been great where I'm at right now, but I know plenty of other school sites where it's not that and it's definitely favorites and it's definitely, you know, some real problematic power dynamics between administration and, and teachers. And I, I would hate for someone just to have the freedom to take layoffs as the opportunity to move out some of the maybe more challenging voices who push back against certain policies and practices. So yeah, there's definitely a lot to un unpack there. And you know, yeah. in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to be dealing with this at all. But it's not a perfect world. It's far from it. And um, who knows what the future <laughs> What is this like. perfect world that you speak of, Dr. Rustin? <laughs> I'm unfamiliar with this concept. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> and plus the added layer of Coronavirus. I mean, this is a time where, yeah. if anything, we need more staff members than ever before. If we're gonna, you know, try to reduce the the number of students per teacher because of social distancing and all that, like if I'm supposed to have a much smaller set of students in front of me, be, so that we could spread out, there's gonna take more staff to do that. Unless you're gonna have just a really, really creative type of school year schedule that, you know, I, 
just extends and extends and that same teacher has like 10 kids at a time but like for the whole year or whatever like it's 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 a it's a mess jeff this but is we're going to sort it nightmare. out <laughs> yes yes we will we are going to do something, something. Right? like uh august and september are coming indeed and school's going to happen so districts are working hard on it and uh you know it's 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 a i mean it's a ridiculous puzzle to figure out right yeah so, yeah all right jeff so let's let's just at least think about those teachers who are entering the profession and you know budget cuts and, and economic distress aside, let's learn a little bit about how they are entering the profession in terms of uh, mindset and preparedness and the impact of this COVID-19 uh, spring that we have had. So let's go ahead and jump to the seminar and have that discussion with the director of UCLA's teacher education program. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are very excited to welcome to the show uh, a new guest and someone that uh, Manuel and I have both admired for some time now. She is Emma Ippolito, director of the teacher education program at UCLA. And um, Manuel is vaguely familiar with UCLA. And, I, I do uh, believe I've heard of that, that number one public university <laughs> in the world, Jeff. I do believe I am familiar Slight, with that. Slightly familiar with UCLA. Um, and we're so excited to have Emma to help us unpack this, uh, this just interesting topic. Um, as we're kind of at, in many ways, the, the peak and most urgent time of the teacher hiring season, what better uh, time to talk about issues in the teacher pipeline, how we're preparing the next generation of teachers, and um, how teacher education programs are evolving to kind of meet the, the demands of the time. So Emma, welcome to all of the above. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to engage in this conversation with you all. And you're right, this is a really good time for this conversation. Yeah. So Emma Ippolito is the director of the teacher education program at UCLA. Her area of specialization is history and social science instruction uh, and teacher preparation and development. Prior to joining the teacher education program, she served as the director of the UCLA History Geography Project, a site of the California History Social Science Project. Dr. Ippolito has many years experience as an educator, a leader of professional development, and a teacher educator. She has developed and directed several state and federally funded programs for teachers. Welcome, Emma. Manuel, take it away. So thank you, Emma, for taking the time to uh, sit with us today. We know it's a hectic time of year, this being the end or towards the end of the academic year, plus with obviously the, the biggest ongoing headline right now, the coronavirus crisis and its impact on education. We figured we'd start there and ask, how have the uh, COVID-19 shutdowns impacted your teacher ed candidates? Yeah, um, so lots of changes for us. Um, I think the... The biggest change was remote learning for UCLA in general, one of the biggest ones. Um, all our classes have been in person. Um, and, and so the shift for our instructors, and so actually that was the, my initial work was to make sure all of our instructors could get online and support our students. Um, then the other piece has been with school closures. Um, students were working in schools, were supporting teachers, were student teaching. Um, and student teaching looks very different um, remotely than it does um, when you're there. 
And so, uh, you know, for each student, it looks a little bit different. Um, it's For some, it's taken a little bit longer to be able to facilitate some work online, um, in particular, our elementary students. But our secondary, um, our students who are going to be secondary teachers, they were off and running um, almost right away, right? Um, so I think that's been and the biggest change because each situation, each school is in a different place. And so trying to support our students to get one, begin remote instruction, but also to support their the socio-emotional needs of their students. Um, because we know, you know, we know the pandemic has caused a lot of turmoil for families. And so what could we do um, so that our students are equipped to do that work? So all those shifts have been happening and major shifts in policy um, around credentialing of teachers. So trying to get a hold of all of that um, has been an endeavor, but we're moving along. I'm actually curious about the, the credentialing part of it because I've had student teachers, not from UCLA though, because my, you know, my district, our, our student teachers tend to come from USC or Cal State LA. But when I've had them, you know, I've always had to sign off their sheets for like their hours, their observation hours uh, to meet whatever requirements they had. Um, so I'm not sure how that might apply to UCLA's program, but in terms of that, that student teacher like needing to get a, a certain amount of hours of observation or teaching or whatever by a certain date and deadline has has any of that discussion been sorted out yet yes all of that well i can't say that well we have a lot more clarity at this point early on so the it's the california commission on teacher credentialing that um that credentials teachers um and early on they they you know they told us there has to be flexibility right Prior for us, online online didn't count for, for their hours, right? right. Um, teacher candidates are expected to complete 600 hours of clinical practice. Um, and it all for us, all of that meant what they were doing in their placement um, and, and in person. And um, the commission came back early, quickly, with um, guidance that said, online instruction can count the time that you spend planning that instruction for some of our um, some of our students who will be elementary teachers um, online instruction wasn't you know even a possibility because you know the kids didn't have devices um, and so putting together materials that families could pick up that that work that you did with a guiding teacher all of that counted so all of that has been a major shift they also said the work they do with us um, with as experienced educators, that, that those hours counted as well. In the past, we really had not counted that time. Um, I'll give you an example. Our, our elementary uh, candidates take, oh gosh, I can't even tell you the number of, of uh, methods classes, right? Because they need to be able to teach everything. So art, um, math, writing, literacy, social studies, that's what I teach, uh, science, all of the, that work that involved looking at student work, planning, so forth, those hours counted. So that was a major shift um, from the commission and a way to support uh, teacher candidates. Um, I could get into the weeds a little and say that uh, one of the uh, um, one of the ways that teachers are, another aspect of credentialing um, requirements is the teacher performance assessment, the TPA. Um, and students have to film themselves. There's two, really two TPAs, have to film themselves teaching um, and write up 
um, the work that they're doing right up their lesson plans. That has not changed. Um, we were lucky in some respects um, that our students uh, needed to have our, our rule is that they has to be, it had to be turned in by March 20th, which meant that we had to have done a lot of the filming ahead of time. So that put us in a better, um, some of us, not all of us, um, my music students do two rounds of filming and they're in a different situation. But um, even then um, the commission has said that if you're teaching online um, and can grab some of that video that you can submit that as well. Uh, it's tricky, right? Our students weren't taught to teach online. They were taught to teach in person. And so trying to make that transition um, for that group of students has been um, a hurdle. <laughs> uh, but um, but we're, we're confident. I just had a meeting with their advisors. We're confident that, that some of those students um, will be able to get a traditional uh, credential. So I hope that... It's a lot. <laughs> no, that, that, I mean, I didn't know any of that. I was, I was wondering how the teacher candidates, those who, you know, I, in my memory, I remember scrambling for hours and, and trying to make sure it all adds up. Um, I was wondering how that was being dealt with. So, yeah, that was very, very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, Emma, I can, I can certainly on a personal level uh, relate a little bit to the struggle uh, that you were just mentioning with, uh, with teachers being taught uh, to teach in the physical sense and then having to adjust to online instruction. I, as someone who teaches or facilitates learning amongst adults, uh, ran my first uh, of our monthly meetings with principals, um, professional development meetings with principals uh, just recently and uh, online. And uh, it is it is a very different experience than, uh, you know, than than what I'm very used to and very comfortable with. And, you know, reading the room and adjusting things based on what you can physically experience when you're with uh, the folks that you're, you know, you're you're teaching to. So um, I could certainly appreciate that. I'm, I'm wondering also, Emma, if you can can share with us a little bit about um you know, sort of the, the impacts of this on teacher shortages, because California, like most states in the country, is in the midst of a, you know, a, a serious and growing teacher shortage challenge uh, in many ways. And I uh, wonder if you can share some insights about what you see as kind of the, the root of that challenge and also how COVID-19 and our response to it may affect uh, our response to that shortage. Yeah, I mean, I I can't say that I have uh, research knowledge on the shortage I, other than what I read. Um, I do think that, you know, as I look at the work of schools, that um, schools are our last social safety net, um, and it's the one the one social safety net that works, right? And so it feels like a lot of times we put a lot on schools without providing them without providing our educators, our administrators, our leadership with all the resources that students need to, to really be an effective um, social safety net. And so um, I've been thinking about the work of um, community schools and wraparound services, right, that, that um, community schools have been building. And so that's a piece of it, I think, that, that if we could really fund schools to, to do the, all the work that we ask them to do, um, that that would um, that would go a long way, I think, to retaining educators. Um, my other thought 
is, and I'm worried that 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 this in this sense COVID will definitely impact this, is that we go through periods of of economic instability. I'll say it that way. I'm thinking about the recession um, and the Great Recession. Right, that's not that long or far away. But I can think about students who graduated from our program who I worked with, and they were laid off every year uh, for five years, every year. And every year they got their jobs back, but but the toll that that takes, right? Every year in June, they're laid off, they come back, they would come back as long-term subs because they had a passion for the school, they were committed to their students. Um, and then sometime in October, they were hired um, as the teacher again. But every year to be laid off, it took an incredible toll on that group. And I think that's what, 2007, 2008, uh, I'm thinking that that's part of it. And I I worry now, you know, as they talk about um, the deficit, right, the governor has put out a two-year projected deficit, um, what that's going to mean for funding for schools. And I do think that that is going to happen. That's going to increase. If this job is not... If students put in all this work to learn to teach and and don't know that that a position is going to be available or all the investment that they've made into a school to learn about a school, to learn about families, to learn about their students, um, that that definitely takes a toll. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we were talking about that at the top of this episode about the you know, our memories of the Great Recession. I myself was laid off three years in a row um, during that period. And yeah, that was a very heavy toll. And just the uncertainty about what next year will look like in terms of the um, potential of, of teacher layoffs and, and, and all of that. But, and then there's the separate economic concern, which is housing. So you, obviously your program is in the, at the number one public university in the world, situated in Los Angeles. And housing in Los Angeles has been incredibly, incredibly uh, expensive and and beyond what many first year and second year teachers can afford. So we're wondering how the the housing crisis and cost of living has uh, perhaps impacted your program and what your thoughts are around teacher compensation in light of the fact that so many teachers can't even afford to live in the city that they want to teach in. Yes. Well, that's to me, there's no issue. We need to pay folks more, particularly for the amount of preparation that we're asking of them. Um, I, that, that's, that, that to me is not difficult to say, right? That's right. just, we know that's true. Um, I will say that what's been interesting for us is that, um, you know, we really try to ground our work in specific communities and build student knowledge of that community, but build our own knowledge of those communities, not just... Um, you know, not just the history, but the current life of that community. And um, what we're observing is, uh, well, point blank, I have a student that comes in from, I have two students that are driving in, that were driving in until COVID closures, um, were driving in from Oxnard um, Uh every day. Yikes. (laughs) Oxnard. I've got two in Oxnard, Palmdale, Santana. um, And you know, and they're doing it, I understand, right? They're doing it to um, to save money, right? Because that way they don't go into deep debt. And so we try our very best um, to support them. And we know, right, we work in particular schools. We work in East Los Angeles. So, you know, for the Santana people, well, you know, they'll tell you it's worse to get to UCLA than they can get to East Los Angeles. But we're trying to, like, put them together in small groups, cluster them 
in particular communities, but but um, we had someone commuting from commuting from San Bernardino, right? And so all of that, I think, you know, the, the um, I just ran a panel for incoming students, and the student from Oxnard said, "Well, I wake up at five forty-five in the morning, and I need to be out the door by six fifteen to be able to get to my school by seven thirty. Um, and and has the same two-hour commute, you know, in the evenings. And so trying to, I think that all speaks to the fact that, one, student debt is very high as an undergraduate, and two, it, it's not affordable to move here. And so that, I know other cities that are very expensive, like San Francisco, um, well, and this is what they said, again, we don't know what COVID will bring, but um, the city was working um, with the district to build housing um, that was more affordable for teachers. And so they were trying to, to build a substantial amount of housing to support um, teachers living in the community. I would love to, and I know LA has talked about it. I'm not sure where they are. It seemed like San Francisco had the money <laughs> and that's always the key, right? Um, and so um, that's one of the things that, that I would love to see uh, in Los Angeles, different ways that we can support teachers to live in the communities where they work. Yeah, uh, Emma, you know, Manuel and I uh, many years ago went to graduate school together and uh, got our teacher credential together. And uh, I, I think even though we've, you know, we still got a little bit of youth on our side, we, we might now be officially uh, qualified as, as old heads in the, uh, in the teacher uh, space. And uh, it's been a while since we have been in graduate school and have gone through our uh, credentialing program. So for folks like us who, you know, who may not remember it uh, like it was yesterday, um, I'm curious to know, like, how have teacher education programs evolved in recent years and what maybe are some of the kind of changes in approaches or uh, experiences for the, you know, for the students um, that would be interesting for people to know about that might not be obvious to um, even to educators, let alone the public. Yeah. So there's been a lot of stuff um, and I've been out for way longer than you two. Um, but um, the, um, I think one of the big changes is that it's sort of where we started. Um, the big changes around clinic, what we call clinical practice, right? So the what students do in classrooms. Um, there has been a lot of um, new regulation, new policy around having students spend more time in schools, and that's the 600 hours we've been that, that I referenced earlier, um, and. Along with that comes a model that um, UCLA was experimenting with um, through a program called IMPACT. Uh, for 10 years, we've been doing this, a residency model um, that has um, a teacher, um, a, guide, a mentor teacher, a mentor, and a student teacher working together right at the beginning of the school year and, and really uh, being co-instructors. And so it's a... It's a different apprenticeship model. Um, it's a lot of work for our mentors as well. Um, and but this residency model has built up traction, and the, the through with state funding, the California 
uh, Commission to Credentialing has um, funded residency programs in the state. So we have a residency program with LA Unified. So this idea of residency, I mean, even if you think about the words, right, um, that you are deeply in, deeply embedded in the work of the school and um, it early on as a, as a, as a brand new pre-service teacher. So that's one of the big changes that moved to residency. Um, I also think that as I read and as I think about the work, so I, I will add that this is my third year um, directing the teacher education program at UCLA. I still see myself as a learner. Um, and uh, the other piece that, um, that I'm noting is the importance of that strong relationships with the schools where we, um, where we place students. And so um, for a long time, UCLA has had this dream about like almost a hospital school, a residency school where, where we cluster groups of students um, and that the teachers in those schools have a very close connection then to our, to our program. Um, as I think about um, some of this, the work that I've been doing um, with Ben Gertner and his deep knowledge, right? That's one of the things that we've talked about that Ben Gertner who's the principal at Roosevelt um, High School. Um, that deep knowledge that he has of our program, that the teachers that work with our students have with of our program, um, that that's key to facilitating the growth of our of our pre-service students. And so, um, I do think that that's the that's one of the big changes. And this this thinking around, um, I re was rereading, um, gosh, it's called Community Teacher. I think it's Peter Morrell, who's the author, um, talking about those things, that what does it mean to really be in partnership with a school, for a teacher education program to work with the school and not just place one student, but really understand the work of that school and that the school understand the work of the teacher education program. That those, I think, are two big, um, two big shifts that we're working through right now. Nice. Now, actually, we were going to ask you about sort of the ideal structure for a teacher ed program um, because UCLA's has, for the length of my memory, always been two years, uh, a two-year program. And the program that Jeff and I went to were one-year programs. And I know student teachers currently who are at universities where it's one year and that year is strictly online. Like you never, they never even meet with their uh, professors in person. And then, of course, there's uh, controversy or, or criticism of uh, programs like Teach for America for for being like a, a summer uh, situation of, of getting your training before going into the the school year. So it sounds like what you're describing here as far as the residency model and having that deep knowledge of, of the school and of the community and of the program sounds a lot more ideal. Why, why, why do you think the one year in and out type of models are so prolific? Well, I think it's economics as part of it. Right. Um, it's and, and if we think about what you the first question you asked me about the shortage, right, or I think second question, but the, the question about the shortage, um, if there's a shortage of teachers, then there's this need, right, to quickly um, produce, that's a terrible term, uh, to quickly prepare people. Um, and, and so that's part of it. Um, TP used to be a year. Um, I went through the program. Uh, I went a year in the summer, and the summer was because I, I completed a master's degree and I had a bilingual and I have a bilingual credential. Um, and it was, you know, it was different. Um, 
And again, the 600 hours were not present. Um, I do think that for us, what we've gone, the decision was made to go to two years because we know that that first year of teaching is so difficult. And how do we, we're trying to support teachers and their growth. And that we see that in, in all honesty, I mean, I think if I had my way, I could see three, I could see four years. Um, I could see a lot of different things, but um, in terms of what it would look like, you know, to be able to prepare people to, to specialize in different areas where they may have interest, right? That's one of the things I've been trying to think about um, is, you know, we have students who have deep interest in literacy, but what did it mean to be able to give them some choice about some other things that they might take? And still, you know, complete the the you know our the work that we are asking them to do. That's going to prepare them to meet state requirements. Um, I think the other thing that I think TP does well is have students really think about their own positionality, right? As we're entering different communities, and who are we, and as we enter community, um, and so. All of that work takes a long time, um, and it's really, really hard to do. Um, and I, I, I just feel the stress of the students trying to do that, right? And I, I think about our elementary candidates who, you know, take 16 units more than our secondary candidates because they need to take methods in every course. Um, but we have people who know how to teach art and, and know how to teach social studies, and so I think all of those things take time. So I. I don't know. I know the, the last time we were dreaming together with um, the faculty, they're like, imagine if we were three years, everything we could do. Um, I don't think we could get students to stay <laughs> three years, <laughs> but it would be beautiful. <laughs> and yeah. maybe, I mean, the idea for us is that we know, we know how many people are lost to the field of education, right, in the first couple of years. And so this, that second year is really about creating um, practices that are going to sustain them, right? And so our cohort model, the network of teachers, those those are about sustaining people in the profession. Yeah, Emma, I'm so excited to hear you speak about that. And I, as as someone who um, is perhaps a bit of a dreamer as well, and and would wish for that three year preparation uh, sequence for teachers. You know, uh, at some point, maybe we'll we'll have you back with like, uh, you know, a, a union representative or something uh, to kind of um, to kind of unpack that, because I, you know, I see so much potential for, you know, sort of the, the growth and strengthening of the profession with the extension of preparation programs um, and, of course, the financial incentives in place to make it not bury people financially to do so. But as someone who's worked in uh, in positions where I'm supporting administrators with instructional leadership and supporting teams of teachers and teacher leaders, um, seeing the number of folks who come into the profession not having had some foundational learning experiences around things like uh, assessment literacy and around things like uh, you know understanding reading development and how challenges in reading development. Uh, manifest themselves with older students at the, you know, at the high school and middle school levels, right? And how to respond to those things instructionally. Like these are huge things that we grapple with every day in the profession. And we continue to not, you know, not give people at least enough 
learning experiences to, uh, to, to equip them to be ready to respond when they, when they start professionally and, and how beautiful it would be if, if at scale we did that um, you know, more effectively. So uh, perhaps, Emma, a topic for, uh, for your second appearance on All of the Above. Um, but I will, uh, I'll shift gears slightly and, um, and say we've, we've had a few conversations in recent episodes about diversity in the, in the teacher workforce. And you know, in a nutshell, it's an issue we're grappling with. Nationally, the teaching force is something like 70% white, um, but nationally, students in America's public schools are majority students of color. Here in LA, as in other you know, larger urban areas across the country, we have lots of schools that, that are virtually 100% uh, students of color. And so the mismatch of the demographics of the teacher force with the demographics of our students is very apparent. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what are some ways in which uh, your program at UCLA has taken on the, the challenge of helping to address issues of diversity in the teacher workforce? Um, I think it's important that when we talk about diversity that we think about it in in different in maybe a more expansive way um so in tp when we talk about diversity we're talking ethnic and racial of course diversity but also socioeconomic diversity and also um gender right and i think that that latter one is an area of growth for us in particular um but um i mean so as as i said earlier this is my third year um, in this position, and I've inherited a program that's thought deeply about this and that um, has worked really hard to ensure that uh, the majority of our students are students of color. And so this year we're 81% students of color. Um, and again, we need to think, so that doesn't look like other programs, um, in particular, you know, um, at a UC or at a private school. Um, but I think that, um, you know, and I think of, I, I talk a lot to incoming students um, so that they get a sense of, of who we are and to make sure that they really understand this is the work that we do. We don't just say this. Um, and I think that they are very attracted to the mission. Right. We talk about a social justice mission that works in community with with in solidarity with educators, with families, with communities to make change. And I think that that's very attractive to them. Um, and that has helped us um, bring in a, a more diverse uh, a teacher pool. Um, also, I think that they're very attracted by the communities where we work. Um, and some of them either grew up in those communities um, or, um, or similar communities, you know, Fresno or Bakersfield. I'm thinking of the groups that um, I've been talking to that are that will come in in September. Um, you know, Santana, uh, Garden Grove, so areas um, that in a lot of ways mirror the, the communities where we work. And I think that matters, that calls to them. Um, and, I, and I think that teacher education programs need to think about that, right? If we're only serving, if, if you know, there's, there's a lot of research around where teacher education programs place students and looking for the quote, perfect placement. But to me, I'm not sure that the perfect placement exists necessarily, right? But rather we need to help our students see themselves um, in the schools where we work. And again, many, 
again, I inherited a program where students see that, right? That they see that, um, that uh, the places where they work, the, that they're seeing other educators like them making change. So I think that that's, um, that's a big draw. And I think that other programs could do similarly that, that, well, and I know the other piece is a pipeline, right? Um, we're trying to build a pipeline, pipelines in different places as well. Um, and sometimes we do get, it's not, I'm not going to tell you it's all the time, but it is that our, our alumni um, are part of that pipeline. And so sometimes it's their students who send, they send us their students, right, with often an email saying, so-and-so was my student at uh, Santee. So-and-so was my, I've gotten texts from, from teachers at West Adams, right, saying, Emma, so-and-so applied. They were my students in AP US history. Uh, you want this person. So I'm like, great, right? And but then also we to me the other piece is the pipeline toward from community colleges to a UC, right? And so that's one of the things we've been striving to build um, and and work towards. And I don't think I don't, I mean, certainly we can continue to do more um, within our program. Um, I, the other one is a little more complicated, but I would think that one of the things that that has happened at UCLA is that we've decentered. Um, they, I think our faculty would say they have decentered whiteness from the curriculum, and that we begin with the experiences of people of color. And we have these experiences, and that's the starting point. And other folks need to listen hard and understand that that's where we start. Um, and and I know that that's different from from other programs. Yeah. Now it's. Recently, in a, a episode that we had, we fe that featured um, Travis Bristol from Berkeley and Misha Mosley from the Black Teacher Project. When, when talking about teachers of color and, and talking about teacher demographics, uh, one thing that came up was just the the reality that just because a teaching candidate is a person of color doesn't necessarily mean that they are any more effective with uh, working with students of color than a teacher candidate that might be white. So. Um, I'm wondering, how does your program help prepare your candidates for working with students of color? You mentioned something about having uh, your students think about their own uh, positionality. I, w I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that work comes through in, in a lot of different um, uh, pr projects that they complete for the um, for the for the program. Um, we have a whole a, a whole series uh, a series of classes that reference communities. Um, and a piece of that is a positionality paper. So who am I, right? So I'll give you uh, an example of a student um, who said, well, I grew up in this community, but I understand, right? I understand that I left that community to go to college, right? And so when I come back, I come back as a person that's been influenced by all these things. How do I come back and still be a good member of this community? Um, and what does it mean um, to listen really carefully to parents? And how do I connect with uh, community programs and you know, cultural educators in this community again um, to bring myself in? And so I think that a lot of the work is that exactly. Um, we've, you know, we've been, um, this is a harsh word, but I'll use it. We've been indoctrinated, right, into this system of meritocracy. And what I tell 
um, students is like, you were the successful, quote, successful ones, right? Because you made it to college. But you're, a lot of it is for them to understand that not everyone had the same experience, that, you know, a whole lot of students were left out of schooling. And how do we start thinking about well, what was it like, right, for a student who did not feel successful in school and who, or who got pushed out? How do we begin to hear those voices um, and, and connect? And a lot of our students, again, come in knowing that, that coming with that understanding, right, that, that that schools were based on on structures that were not meant to, to uplift communities of color. And so what do we have to do uh, to make change? So I think it's a lot, it's a lot. They do a lot of work meeting with, uh, learning about a community um, through interviews, uh, through meeting parents, through different um, opportunities to connect, not just within the school, but the surrounding community of the school. Yeah, well, that is uh, that's just beautiful to hear. Frankly, um, that you know the the next generation of teachers who are who are coming through the uh, you know the campus at UCLA are getting that kind of you know intentionality around their preparation to meet the needs of the students we we know we have in our schools and. Uh, you know, hopefully folks out there listening to this can help, um, you know, champion that cause in their own context as well. Um, but I, I really want to thank our guest today, Emma Ippolito, Director of the Teacher Education Program at UCLA, for joining us. Thank you so much, Emma. Uh, we, we really just enjoyed having you on the show today with us. Thank you. It was, it was fun. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it was good talking to both of you. All right, next up, folks, is today's Class Dismissed. All right, folks, welcome to today's Class Dismissed. And as always, this is a time in each episode when we like to pause for a moment and reflect and give some props to folks out there in education just doing some great work making folks smile, having a big impact, you know, some good news, right? So uh, today's story is about an issue we know that certainly every teenager out there is thinking about, and for sure the parents of those teenagers are thinking about, and every high school in America is thinking about, and that is graduation. And we're right in kind of the, the midst of the peak of the high school graduation season, and uh, want to give some props to some schools out there doing some interesting and innovative things in this season of COVID. So, Manuel, what do we got today? Yeah, so Jeff, you know, I teach seniors, and like any teacher who has seniors, they they have witnessed the heartbreak that is um, not having a, a end to your senior year, a traditional end. So seniors have been stripped of so much, obviously from prom and, and you know senior award ceremonies and all that stuff to graduation and graduation ceremonies specifically. And we want to shout out for one, the, the seniors who are, are doing their best to try to keep their head up and, and still um, acknowledge their, their achievements and their success, even if there is not a big traditional uh, graduation ceremony for them. But also want to shout out the schools out there who are, who are trying anything that they can uh, to creatively have as close to a graduation ceremony as possible. So one high school that stood out to me is Colony High School. Colony High School is in the city of Ontario, which is just outside of Los Angeles. And the first week of May, they had a drive-through graduation ceremony. Now, I know if you're listening to this, you've probably seen stories on social media or on the news about different uh, drive-through uh, ceremonies or cap and gown distributions that different schools are doing. 
doing. But Colony High School, the first week of May, um, had this this drive-through ceremony where they actually had like the the podium set up and the speakers up there and the the principal was up there and each family got to drive up with a certain amount of family members per car and the senior showed up in their cap and gown and their their mask that they were wearing had the school logo and said something like titan pride or go go titans on the other side of it so like they looked fantastic and they you know the the on the speakers the the name was announced and this uh student got to walk across this makeshift stage and shake the principal's hand they're all wearing gloves and pose for a very traditional graduation picture so this to me was really really creative being that they did this early like this is the first school that i saw do something like this this is again early may and this is in california so at that time california's like wear a mask in public order was only like i think two weeks old by then and they already had a school logo printed on their masks distributed to all the seniors i don't know if it's maybe a, a family of you know one of the students there who you know has some kind of business where they were able to to make these masks for them especially i don't know but to be able to do that so quickly i mean it looked really really amazing like the the cap and gown with all the all the garb and the mask itself and the school colors with the school logo name announced on the speakers got to walk across the stage get their diploma pose for a traditional picture with the principal all with you know the gloves and the masks and and you know in in with uh, safety in mind, to me, that was really, really dope. And different schools are doing different things, you know, virtual ceremonies or whatever. But Colony High School, man, shout out to you. I, I really appreciated seeing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I thought it was just a really interesting approach. And, you know, schools across country are doing different virtual things is, is mostly what I'm seeing. And, and I get it, right? Like, you know, maybe not every school even has the resources or capacity to do what, what Colony did. But, but I, I think it's great. And, you know, part of what I really liked about uh, seeing the video of their ceremony is I think it preserves a little bit more of the kind of rite of passage aspect of graduation. And, you know, we live in this society that has very few actual rites of passage types of experiences. Like culturally, you know, maybe certain cultures within our society have some of that. But um, like as a collective, we don't have very many real rites of passage. But high school graduation is one of those things, right? It's like a sort of physical and chronological marking of your transition from childhood to adulthood, right? And marking of your transition from sort of dependent on your, you know, your parents to more independent, right? And, uh, and I, you know, I think that's just such an important developmental milestone for young people. And, and I have felt so bad for this year's seniors to have worked so hard for so long and then feel like they don't, they're gonna miss it, right? Um, so it's, it's been amazing to see educators across the country doing so much to preserve what's important about that rite of passage and, and definitely what Colony is doing. Like, you know, I respect it and, uh, you know, appreciate the precautions they were taking as well. Uh, and so, you know, big, big props to them. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So shout out to all the schools and districts out there trying their best to create some sort of semblance of a traditional graduation ceremony. And shout out to all of you high school seniors for keeping your head up and not letting the current circumstances around COVID-19 um, dim your pride over the achievements that you have accomplished um, over all these, all these years. All right. 
So that about does it for this episode, folks. Thank you for, for tuning in. Again, if you're watching on, on YouTube, if you've enjoyed what you've seen, go ahead and give us that, that thumbs up and that subscribe. And if you're listening to the podcast on the go, when you have a moment, please consider rating us and reviewing us. And remember, aotashow.com. Dig through the crates. We have so many episodes where we've touched on so many different topics pre-COVID-19, during COVID-19, and um, there's a lot there for you, all right? So aotashow.com where you will find all of that. All right, so we'll see you next time.